0: We're going to talk about how do you find ultimate meaning and purpose and satisfaction in your life. Because all through history, every culture has been different, but every culture hands you something and says, this is your identity. And if you just get more of this, you'll be happy. Just a little more of that and you'll be satisfied. And yet we continue to learn the lesson that it doesn't matter how much you get, too much rarely leads to satisfaction. So in our series Mastermind, we've been using the game Mastermind as a metaphor that God has a code for us. He has a a code he wants to uncover and help us see to to break the, the code on where we find real meaning and purpose, and in this case, our identity. However, culture gives us some other choice. We're trying to guess, how do I find satisfaction? How do I find what I really want and need? How do I find who I really am? So we've been using a verse from a a letter that Paul wrote to a group of Romans that says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of the world, and what the world tells you is going to make you satisfied. Too much stuff. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, thinking differently in a way that can give you more meaning and purpose to understand what God's good and perfect will is for your life. And so often what culture does is culture comes and says, you are... What, where, when, and how. Culture says, you are what you do. And so you get that great job. And you're satisfied for a little bit. You think, you know what, if the job is a little bigger, then I'd be happy. Well, you know, if, if, if my territory was a little bit bigger, then I'd be satisfied. Right? And it's good. You enjoy it. In fact, it's, it's a lot more fun to have a lot of money than less money, right? But it doesn't finally satisfy. See, well, maybe, maybe money's not it. Maybe who I am isn't what I do. It's where I am in society. It's where I live, how I'm perceived, my reputation. Who I am is where I live, where I am in the pecking order, which includes how I'm perceived. If you just have the right people liking you, if you just have the right country clubs and right connections, that's who you are. That's what you're known by. And that's a piece of you. And it's an important piece of you. But it's not all of you. So culture says, well, then you just need to realize that who you are is who you're attracted to. If you're with beautiful people, you're considered beautiful. Who you're attracted to defines who you are and your identity. You're like, well, I got married. I got the the whole thing. I got the marriage thing going. We've been going for a while and you find out marriage is hard and it's good, but it's also hard and it doesn't fully and finally satisfy either. So culture says, well, you just got to double down on that stuff. What you look like. It's not just who you're attracted to, but you got to look good. And you do look good. For many, many years, you were the best-looking person. And then you start aging, and you're like, well, i got to now work a little harder to be the best-looking person. At some point, you realize, oh, my goodness, I can't be defined by who I am because I can't manage everything about how I appear. Culture tells us it's who you love. It's where you live. It's when I get that title. But I want to propose to you that anything that culture offers you to find your identity is going to ultimately leave you and I unsatisfied. Because the good things, and they're good things that define us, the what's, the when's, the where's, the how's, don't fully and finally satisfy. And those cultural constructs for our identity that encourage you and affirm you on the way up can curse you on the way down. Take the example, maybe you heard about the punch heard around the world back in NBA history. This punch was very well known, and you may know the name Kermit Washington. He was playing for the Lakers at the time, and he was a rising star. He had everything culture offered. He had the resume, he had the jersey, he was well known. Back in those days, every NBA match was like a hockey match because you went there for the fights as much as for the game. There were these unbelievable fights that went on. It was starting to get out of hand, but the NBA hadn't done much about it. And one day a fight breaks out, Kermit Washington is just swinging some punches. Rudy is coming from the other team, not to get involved in the fight, but to break up the fight. As he runs up to to break up the fight, Kermit turns around, think he's coming for him, grabs his fist, spins around and wham, smacks him right in the face, making a horrific noise. Doctors will tell us later he could taste bitterness in his mouth, which means he was tasting his own spinal cord fluid as he hits the ground. He'll need eight surgeries. Shockingly, this man who's suddenly lost his ability to play, his looks, will eventually forgive Kermit for the misunderstanding and for the violation. The NBA will be forced, because this punch heard around the world, finally forced to contain the violence. And in one moment, in one day, everything that defined Kermit is yanked from him. Or rather taken from him because of his one stupid act. He and his wife will describe they went from being on top of the world where he was suspended, longest suspension at the time given by the NBA. There goes one of his identities. Lakers didn't want to recruit him again, who he was, his title, His wife said the friends didn't call. There was such bad press for him. His press was gone. And now no one called. They were socially awkward and socially isolated by all of their friends who didn't want to be guilt by association. Everything that defined them and blessed them just minutes ago, just months ago, was taken away and they had to wrestle with the question, who am I? Kermit tumbled in his career, began to get into addiction because he didn't know who he was without the things culture told him would affirm him. In that story, we go, yeah, we well, hadn't been an idiot. He still have it, right? <laughs> it's easy to be judgmental, but in the same way, if if your vocation defines you, then the minute you get retired, you wonder, well, who am I if I'm not employed? If I don't have that title in that territory, who are we? Is there any way to find our identity or define our identity in something that satisfies? It's not just more of this. Who am I? And this is a piece of me. What I do. This is a piece of me. Who I love. This is a piece of me. My hobbies, but it's not all of me. You see, we all long for a who that transcends the what, when, where, why, and how. We long for a who, some way to define ourselves, something to anchor our identity in that transcends just what we do or when we got our job or when we got our career or when we got married or where we live or how we conduct ourselves. We want something that transcends all that. So I want to talk about two types of who's today. The who that reduces you and a who that transcends you. My hope is they can bring a unity, because when Paul's writing this letter, this chapter we're going to look at today looks like such a, like, why have we been speaking about it? It looks like a thank you so-and-so for what you've done. He says, I want you to know that culture forces you to divide, because everybody argues. If money's your thing, then the rich people and the poor people get divided, because the poor people begin to envy the rich people, and and it divides people. And if it's the popular people and the unpopular people, and the beautiful people and the non-beautiful people, Paul says, the benefit of what I'm going to share with you, it's going to help you. Here's what he says. I urge you, brethren, those who cause divisions and offenses, culture always divides you. Are you in this group or that group, this group or that group? I don't want you to think like that. Contrary, I want to give you a doctrine, a a teaching, a new way of thinking, something that you've learned but you haven't applied yet. And if you get this, you can avoid kind of this cultural divisiveness that's always offered by every culture, and you learn how to be wise and discern what is good and correct evil. That's not to say that any of the things that culture offers you is evil, but building your identity on something culture offers you will never satisfy. So, what do I mean? Well, let's, let's start by looking at the, the who that reduces us. Aren't you far more than your vocation? It's an important part of you. Aren't you far more than who you're attracted to? Your, your beauty and how you come across is important, but aren't you far more than how you look or how you're perceived? you're far more than the what, when, where, why, and how. So Paul writes this letter, and I want you to first get struck by the diversity in this group. There's Roman names and Greek names and Jewish names. There's people who are slave, people who are free. And look at the commonality of this group which with such diverse political, spiritual, and cultural backgrounds. Paul says, hey, could you greet Priscilla and Aquila? This is a a, a team, a a husband-wife team. They risk their own necks for my life. And greet my beloved Epiphanius. And I'm going to pronounce most of these wrong, by the way. Mary and Adronicus and Junia. They're my countrymen and my fellow prisoners. Greet Amplius and Urbanus and Stachys, my beloved Apellus. And they are proved in Christ. Greet those of the household of Aristobus, Aristobulus. And greet Herodian, my countrymen. And greet those of Narcissus and, who are in the Lord. And, and greet Tryphinia and Tryphosa. And greet persis greet rufus chosen lord it's like his mother's my mother they're so close all right i probably botched half those names look at the commonality in this group this is a very diverse group male female married greek jew and look at the commonality man they all come together over some core identity that they are beloved they are forgiven in by god in christ their fellow doing something together. There's this commonality that seems to anchor who they are beyond all their different differences. Now, let's zoom in and just talk about a few of them. Now, some commentators debate just how much weight we can put into this. We'll take a little bit with a grain of salt, but more often than not, what I'm saying is true. These names have significant meaning. Let's look at a few of the names he mentions. We're going to start with people that possibly are at the bottom of the Roman caste system. Because nothing divided people more than the Roman caste system. You were wherever you were in the social caste system. Freeman, Greek, slave, everything in life depended on where you were in their system. And most people in the Roman Empire were slaves. The first person he mentions here is greet ambius. So think of amplification. To amplify something is to make it large. Many scholars think that this was a slave in the Roman Empire. He didn't even have a name when he was bought at the Roman slave auction. Somebody said, hey, I'll take that guy. Which one? Amplius, the big one. So he's been reduced to nothing more than his size. I'm just big. You ever had someone reduce you down to your biggest mistake or one particular quality in you? He was just large. There's another guy mentioned up here named Tertius which literally means number three. Some scholars think that a group of slaves were, were bought that day by the slave owner, and he was just one, two, three, and the name stuck. The who that that culture reduced him to is you're just slave number three. And Cordus literally means four. Might be another slave who was reduced down by his culture to you're a slave and you're just, you just don't have a name, you're just number four. Paul writes in a place we know for sure in the book of Philippians to a guy named Onesimus, who was a slave, and his name literally means useful. You're as valuable as you are useful, but you're still a slave. You're just large. You're just number three. You're just number four. Now, in some way, every culture reduces you down to something. The number in your bank account, the number of your territory, the number of kids you have or don't have, You can become a number, you can become your size, you can become just useful. And when you're not useful because you got cancer, you're not useful because you have a tragedy, who are you if you're not useful anymore? Now contrast that there's another group in here that's on the opposite side of the caste system. These names speak to people who are the influencers of influencers and the leaders of leaders, and they're in the same group and same paragraph as these potential slaves. Look at these names. Aristobulus. His name means the best in counsel. This is the wisdom. This is the best wisdom you can find, the best counsel you can find, a leader's leader. Herodian comes from the word hero and the word song. You're the song. You're heroic. You do the most amazing things. You you win the game, score the goals. You you close the deals. Narcissist, we think of narcissus as something bad, right? Because, that guy's such a narcissist. But narcissism was named after a Greek guy, Narcissus, who loved looking at himself in the mirror, and he fell in love with himself. That's where we get the idea of narcissism. So, Narcissus was somebody who was so incredibly beautiful, he couldn't stop staring at his own reflection. Which speaks to how culture says, you are how wise you are, you are how heroic you are, in this case, you are how beautiful you are. Hermes comes from Mercury, the god Mercury. Um, It's the god of financial gain. And you are how much money you've made or how many deals you can close. Julia, if you look at the Julias all through history, because they came from Julius Caesar, every one of their daughters was named Julia. (laughs) So like, Julia the first, Julia the second, Julia the third, Julia the fourth, Julia the fifth. So you were always whatever your great-great-grandparents did, their legacy. Now, none of this is bad, right? This is good stuff. But do you think Julia is far more than what her great-great-great-grandfather did? Do you think Narcissus was far more than just the beauty he offered? Or lastly, Olympus. That's where we get the idea of Mount Olympus or the Olympics. You are what you can compete. You are what you can accomplish. And here's my point. These are all good things, but you are far more than that sliver. And culture always wants to reduce you down to your race, reduce you down to your efforts, reduce you down to who you're attracted to, reduce you down to what you own or what you don't own. And you are far more than that. And something in you knows that. And you long for a who that doesn't reduce you down to some sliver of some piece of you. There's this writer in New York. She's a real sarcastic writer. She's a celebrity. So she's making fun of celebrities because she is a celebrity. And she's got a real biting um, sense of uh, sarcasm. So I'm going to read this kind of whole quote. It's a little bit longer. But to describe what she's saying, culture tells you you'll be worth something. You'll be somebody if you're famous. Here's what she writes in her book, If You Can't Live Without Me, Why Aren't You Dead Yet? That's the name of her book. Gives you an idea of her sarcasm. The minute a person becomes a celebrity is the same minute he or she becomes a monster. Celebrities are once perfectly pleasant human beings with whom you might have lunch on a slow Tuesday afternoon. But now they have become supreme beings, and their wrath is awful. It's not what they had in mind. So what happened? When God wants to play a practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish. Some celebrities, more than any of us, wanted fame. They stepped on the other guy's face in their desperate need. And then the night, they became famous. They wanted to shriek with relief. Finally, all their fantasies have been realized. Yet their reality was still the same. If they were miserable before... They were twice as miserable now because that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, provide them with personal fulfillment, and ha-ha, happiness, had happened. But nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. Now, she's a little self-righteous there. But there's the point. Fame is a wonderful thing. And you think, if I got famous... Well, if I grew the business and I was really famous, if my name recognition was really, really well known. But you know what? That's just a piece of you. And if you are nothing more than how famous you are, you've reduced yourself down to a sliver of who you really are, and you long for, I long for something deeper than that, something to anchor my soul to that's bigger than that. That's what she's getting at here. And that's why what Paul is telling this group of people It's great to be wise. It's great to be a hero. It's great to compete and be Olympics. It's, it's, It's great to be saved out of slavery. But what God offers is a way of thinking about your identity that's just not more of the same stuff. It's a color combination you don't even have access to. It's that the God of the universe can define who you are. And that is going to anchor you when culture comes and goes. That you are who he made you to be. You are who he paid for. You, you are what he, what, how much he loves you. And your, your identity can be defined by whose you are, not just by who you are or what you do. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's look into this. What about that who that transcends? The who that transcends. What if who I am, it can include some of these colors, right? You mix them all together with light and it turns white. White is ultimate. all the different colors put together turns white. But I am so much more than just one sliver of this. Who I am is whose I am. Let me just give you a few little things he says. You can anchor your identity in three things. Here's the first thing. Who made you? I am valuable when I have a good deal that closes and when the deal didn't close. But I'm valuable because who made me. To him who is able to establish you. This is something you can root yourself into. In fact, all through history, there's something called magio Deo, which means to be made in the image of God. Imagio, image, Deo, God. And as a group of monks in like the second or third century began to reflect on the book of Genesis and saying, if every human me- being is made in God's image, then that means regardless of what culture says, every person is inherently valuable. Not because culture says they are or aren't, not because they're slave or free, rich or poor, black or white, their value comes from a magio Deo. And this simple idea extracted from a group of monks from a little passage in Genesis becomes the very essence of the Civil Rights March. That even if your culture says it's okay to do X and Y and to own X and Y, it's wrong because there are certain inalienable truths that come from we all have a common creator. Even if we disagree on what to call him. But that magio Deo is where you can find your identity and others can find their identity in whose you are common creator and see how that doesn't divide it unifies everybody every culture and every time paul goes on to say but uniquely the message of the bible is it's not just i'm valuable because of whose i am and who made me but number two i'm valuable because of who paid for me how valuable are you to the creator of the world well paul mentions kind of this cryptic word he says my gospel and the preaching of jesus christ it's like well what does that mean But the word gospel means good news. And here's the main message of the Bible. The God of the universe, who has access to all values and all wealth and all universes, stepped into human history for you and for me. And he didn't just love us, he demonstrated that in the gospels that he came to earth and he died for us to pay for all the things we did wrong. We were so valuable that he left his his omnipresence for a time to come to earth. He, He left some of his attributes for a time so that he could show you that you are so valuable. He crossed long distances to come and find you and to find me. You see, it's one thing for somebody to say, well, God loves people. All right, that's fine. We'll prove it. God proved it by coming to history to pay for you. And the payment, if you've ever kind of studied or looked at the the death of Jesus, he's being crucified on a cross to show you, this is how much it cost for me to love you, for me to fix what was coming between us, the the brokenness or the disagreements or or the betrayal between us. You are loved so much that even when you spit in my face, I died for you. So your value comes from who made you, but also from who paid for you. Then he goes on he says, well, what's the third thing? Well, he loves you. The God of the universe who made everything looks down at you, and when your culture says you're not valued because of your beauty or because you're wrinkled or because you're old or because you're not as useful as you used to be, you can be valued because the God of the universe paid for you, made you, but he also loves you. This gospel of Jesus Christ was made manifest. It came on the scene and the glory of Jesus Christ is that God gets the credit when you find out what he did for you. He loved you enough to die for you. That was his motivation for coming to earth. Did your kids ever have uh, stuffed animals? Maybe your grandkids? And you would look at these things. And quite frankly, they were disgusting. I mean, they haven't been washed in Years. The ear's fallen off, the nose has been so cuddled up over the years, it's fallen apart. Nothing about my daughter loved Webkins, for example, like, oh, look at those Webkins! aren't they awesome? No, they weren't awesome. Maybe they used to be awesome five years ago, but now they've been rubbed, I mean, the eyeballs are falling out and everything. But we would just say, Sierra, you have a hundred animals, actually had more than a hundred, you got to reduce them down to a hundred. I love them all. They weren't valuable because they were useful. They weren't valuable because they were pretty anymore. (coughs) They weren't valuable because they were new. They were valuable because they were loved by my daughter. In the same way, God says, when you begin to recognize that your worth can come from the fact that I made you, I paid for you, and I loved you, that will always transcend the, the, the ups and downs of whatever culture puts in your hands. And the same thing is true of religion, by the way. And this is why Christianity and the good news is so much different from religion. Religion says if you have a good day obeying God, ooh, then God's happy with you. If you have a bad day obeying God, God's not so happy with you. And religion is equally as uncertain. The message of the Bible is even when you had a bad day, God accepts you based on Jesus' good day. And so when you become a Christian, if you've ever thought about doing it, it's really saying, I'm not going to put my identity in what I do for God, because that goes up and down depending on the week and the month. I'm going to put my identity in what God did for me, because that is confident and that is secure. So in this series, we've been interviewing different psychologists. You got to know Chris a little bit. You got to know John a little bit. I began to ask John, how did he move from kind of religious thinking about his identity to understanding, finding his identity and who made him, who paid for him, and who loved him. I'd like you to hear his story, then we're going to apply this to all of our life. Let's watch. You know, I think for a lot of us, religion is a drag. It just feels like it's going to drag you down, guilt, condemnation, a whole big list of to-dos and to-don'ts and shalls and shall-nots. John, tell me about your spiritual journey. What are kind of the benefits? Like, why would I even consider a relationship with God or Jesus?
1: For me, the relationship with God has been freeing. And that's the best way I can describe it. I still experience negative thoughts. I still experience sadness. I still still experience worry, anxiety, and anger. I have those things. But when I'm grounded in my faith, and not my religiosity, the rules, but when I'm grounded in my faith, I'm freed because it's at that point, I know what's expected of me. And I know... I don't want to say purpose, but I ha- the meaning, the meaning is there to my life. And when I have meaning, everything, the noise of life qui- becomes more quiet. That's the, about the best way I can describe it. So for me, it's just freedom.
0: How does it play itself out, say, in your marriage, your professional life? Like, what is What are the benefits of of God, God's word, God's message, Jesus, to a typical day in your marriage or a typical day in, in, in work?
1: Um, In a typical day, it gets me through the the awful stories I hear sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, there's I can think of a time when I was working with a particular family and this spouse had to make a decision about withdrawing care. And she was struggling with this, you know, do I withdraw care? My husband's going to pass. And that's a heavy thing, right? Or I'm working with a kid who has this awful story of trauma and abuse a mile long. And I just think to myself, you know, God's placed me in this moment for a reason. I'm here, I just have to figure out what my purpose is so that I can carry out God's will. And that allows me to go on to the next thing without bringing all of that trauma from those events with me. Because at the end of the day, my being is rooted in what God wants from me. And and my relationship is, what do I need to do? to not only better the people around me because that's what God wants, but what do I need to do to make God's kingdom more real? What do I need to do to make, to honor Him? That's probably the better. So it's
0: one. a motivator for you as well, yeah. Yeah,
1: it's a motivator and it allows
0: me to keep from being stuck. And, and how has your time at Horizon specifically been helpful in maybe growing up religious, but um, maybe the difference you've experienced here? Right. So
1: I grew up as a Catholic and, and I have nothing bad to say about the Catholic Church. I, I enjoy what they've taught me and what I've learned growing up. And the way my family instilled the faith, the core faith, the foundational faith. But what Horizon really did for me was help me better understand my relationship with God. Not so much the rules about being a Christian because, yeah, there's things you should and you shouldn't do, right? We get that. Okay. But what's the point of my relationship with God? Why do I even want to have a relationship with God? And I think Horizon helped me answer those questions. And in those questions, I found my meaning. My purpose is to help other people as a therapist. It caused me to push myself out of my comfort zone many, many times to do things I wouldn't ordinarily do because I'm like, you know, God's really nudging me. God, this is, this is what he wants. And so I think if I had to sum it up in word, Horizons helped me with bravery. It's also given me the foundation to stand strong on that belief and relationship I have.
0: So I love that idea of finding your identity in who God says you are. In fact, let me go back to that that, that group of people that we talked about and ask yourself, what would it look like for you to find your identity in whose you are, not what culture says you are? Find your identity in whose I am, not what culture says I am. Enjoy your money. Enjoy your fame. Enjoy your approval. Enjoy your job. Just don't let it define you. Instead, anchor yourself into whose you are, not what culture says you are. I want you to imagine this group of people, some rich, some poor, some slave, some free, find this core identity that Paul writes them about in the last chapter. Remember I told you that guy named Tertius, his name was Three? Remember his whole life, you're nothing, you're a slave, you're a three. You're nothing but a three. He discovers that the God of the universe made him. He discovers that the God of the universe died for him. He discovers that the God of the universe loves him so much that he died on the cross for him. Let me show you how the book of Romans ends. Number three finally tells you who's been writing the book the whole time. Romans chapter 16, verse 22. After thanking everybody and their brother that Paul thanked, he simply says, oh, by the way, I, Tertius, number three, who wrote this epistle write to you in the Lord. Number three, wrote the most powerful, long-lasting, philosophical and theological lecture ever written in human history that transformed Western civilization. And equally, Olympus could have said, I've always been defined by how well I competed and the gold medals I had, and I finally found identity that included my competition, but I am so much more than just my winnings. And each person, rich or poor, were able to find their identity in whose I am, and it freed them to be everything they were meant to be, because that who transcended all the cultural slices that culture tries to reduce us and fragment us into. I'll give you an example. Just last week, right after the second service, I had a guy come up to me, he says, can I talk to you for a second? I said, sure. He said, we've been coming for a while. He said, and we just got this. I knew exactly what it was. You may not. He goes, this, my son just moved up to the kindergarten program. And this is a Bible that the entire Bible is in a comic book format. From Genesis to, to, to Exodus. And we used to kind of do Bible study at my house. But now every night the kids are like, we got to do Bible study, because every single three pages ends with this cliffhanger. And we are talking about spiritual matters with my kindergartner, and things I've never imagined before. I can't thank you enough for this church. I can't thank you enough for the children's program who gave this to us. I'm learning more about the Bible myself, just because I'm going through the comic book with my kids. I said, man, that's so awesome. Can I tell you a story? He said, sure. Let me take you back in time for a second to 2007. In 2007, there was no church here. There was no building here. It was actually a golf course. And we gathered together as people who had been fundraising for this place. And we put butterflies all over this property. And those butterflies were to represent how we hoped this place would change people in the future. So there on your right-hand side, that stick with a picture, that's a picture of where the children's ministry will be. In 2007, that's me. I, I have hair, so you probably don't recognize me. That's me, and that that little girl who's blonde is my daughter, our current children's pastor. And you know how she learned the Bible? Every night, Sierra, Javen, Beth, and I would read just a couple pages and discover a God who loves us and made us an identity that transcends our culture. And this book was so impactful to Sierra that she decided to start giving out to every family and every kindergarten that moved up in our children's program. He's like, really? I said, can I tell you more? He said, yeah. I said, you know why this book I love so much? This book, which is illustrated by somebody from Marvel Comics who redid the drawings, is based on a less cool version that I had as a kid called The Picture Bible by David C. Cook. The reason I know the Bible, love the Bible, know the God of the Bible it's not because of seminary. It's because when I was five years old, my parents bought me a comic book Bible. And while church was so boring, I sat in the pew and I read the Bible that was so interesting. And I learned about a God who loved me and died for me and paid for me. That's the power of finding your identity. And some of us, it's an early age. Some of it's an older age. But we want you to know the power of knowing who you are. Let me tell you one more story as the band comes out. I don't know how many of you know who Jim Statmiller is. If you don't, you probably ran into him hundreds of times. That's Jim back in 2007 when we were praying for this property to build this place. You probably recognize Jim maybe from WLW. He was on the radio for many, many years. He helped start the precinct restaurant. But you probably know him because he's one of the guys that park cars for us. He probably helped park your car over the last 10 years. If you ate bagels here, it's probably because Jim, he said, what can I do around here? Can you get bagels every day? Every day he brought bagels in. If you've been downtown to serve at City Gospel Mission, you know there's Jim in the, in the center there the last couple of years where he was the one serving, helping, leading, and guiding people down at their work at City Gospel Mission. And every week when I came out of the service, Jim would come up to me and say, Chad, I got to you. He called himself Squirrel. If you don't know Jim, he calls himself Squirrel because he's kind of squirrely. And Jim's like, Chad, hey, Squirrel, what's going on? He's like, man, I'm so glad for God. You yeah. know been at the top of the stack, been at the bottom of the stack in my life, and I am so glad that I know a God who loved me and died for me, and I'm going to heaven one day if I need to. Ah, Jim, that's a long way away. But it wasn't a long way away. Jim passed away about two weeks ago. So you'll see there's different people volunteering to park your car, and different people bringing bagels and leading you at City Gospel. But every time I think of Jim, we're going to do his funeral in a few weeks. It's going to be a packed house of everybody who's ever listened to WLW here probably. I'm always reminded that Jim put his identity, not in starting the precinct or being part of that movement or not being the big voice or salesman at WLW. He found his identity in the thing that lasts eternity, who he is in God. Culture will tell you you who you are. But what if we decide to transcend culture and find an identity and say, God, I'm going to be who you say I am. Maybe you want to pray with me. And maybe for me, closing my eyes helps. It may not for you. And just say, God, I, I want to believe. Or maybe if you're ready, God, I do believe that I can find my identity in what you say about me not what my crazy culture says about me. Thank you for dying to pay for my failures. Thank you for dying for the way I got arrogant about my victories. God, come and not only live in me, but become the the anchor. Become my compass for how I see myself. Maybe put in your own words. God, you're my worth. Maybe, God, you're my self image. God, you're my value. God, you're what defines me. Help me to walk in that. God, we thank you for this series. We thank you for the reminder to think differently about who we are and about what freedom looks like, what forgiveness looks like, what blind spots look like. Father, may we go in freedom and joy. May we be transformed by the renewing of our mind, knowing your good, pleasing, and acceptable will. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, amen, we would love to just meet you, put a name with a face. There'll be some folks third door on the left in the hearth room. If you're watching out in the tent or online, again, thanks for joining us for this series. We're starting a brand new series.